0: Today's very special broadcast was recorded at the House of Blues with Dave Perner, our special guest from Soul Asylum. Dave is the lead singer and principal songwriter of Soul Asylum, one of the biggest bands of the 90s, and an old and dear pal. This is uh, the Chris Kirkwood podcast. I am Bill Cody, the producer. This is the lovely Chris Kirkwood, the host of the podcast, and we have... The amazing Dave Perner today is our guest. Hey,
1: man.
2: So, uh, where should we start off? Let's just jump right into it. Dave, thanks for doing this.
1: No problem, Chris. You know, I'd do anything for you. Uh, almost. Anything, almost. Almost anything. Almost I do almost Except anything. Except for
2: that one for you. thing. No, well, you yeah, did it that one right, time, right? and uh, I'm still healing.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and uh, so, this is another episode of our podcast. I'm doing a podcast now. And uh,
1: here it is. I know, it's pretty exciting. It's like a live studio audience and- This is the uh, first time we've done this. Really, Point out that there's ceiling. a live
2: studio audience. You guys want to say hello?
1: Hello! Hey. Hi, everybody.
2: everybody. Everybody all know Dave. Bill.
1: I'm Dave, he's Bill. He's Chris. Yeah. Good, I think we're done. I think, yeah, I think <laughs> we're <done. Yeah. laughs> Felt pretty good.
2: Well yeah.
0: right. yeah. cool. let cool. Why don't, we go all the way, why don't we go all the way back? Uh, so the band was originally called uh, Fast, Loud, Rules? we started
1: off, it was Loud, Fast, Rules, yeah. That was kind of a, not a great idea. I don't know where Danny got that idea from somewhere. But we, I don't know. We, we grew out of it really fast and really loudly.
2: So when did, when, when did you guys start playing together, David?
1: So mm. David's
2: the, Dave's the, Dave's the, Dave's the lead singer, mm-hmm. guitar player soul asylum
1: yeah we started out in carl's mother's garage in about 19 i'm going to say 81. okay and uh, you guys are young yeah and i went to a different high school than the other guys and the other guys were carl was actually um selling some substance that we won't really talk about out of the garage so there'd be a knock on the door in the middle of practice and they'd do their little Tobacco cool. deal. <laughs> uh, that they kind of support. Legal tobacco. It's phase. quite a business. How'd
2: you meet those guys?
1: Uh, mutual uh, friends at a grocery store down the street from where I went to high school. They were all bag boys.
2: Okay. Did they go to high school together?
1: They they went to some place called Marcy, which is over by the University of Minnesota, and uh, they came over to Uptown to work at Lund's, the grocery store. And then they started dating the girls from my high school. Okay. And that kind of all just turned into, what's that's up all... with these cool punk rock guys that don't go to my school? And,
2: and that's all in Minneapolis?
1: Yep. And those guys were punk rock back then? Carl was the first punk rock guy that I ever became friends with. He did the like trip to England and came back with a black leather jacket with little wow. badges on it and wow, everything, yeah.
2: So, had you been playing for a while at that point already?
1: I had a band called The Shits. The Shits? That mm-hmm. yeah, was pretty top flight. The Shits were uh, really <laughs> terrible. But it was fun to go, we're The Shits, you know. Like, it was very punk rock. And, you know, it was Ramones and Elvis Costello and when, covers like that.
2: When did you start playing? Like, when did you get into guitar? How did you get into guitar?
1: I played trumpet from third grade to junior high school and then I switched to saxophone because I was trying to get closer to the rock, you know, so I was like, hey, well, Bruce Springsteen and Bob Seger have saxophone players, maybe I could get into rock that way. And then the uh, trumpet player who's, who sat next to me, I took lessons from his brother, and he was way better than me, but for some reason I got the first chair, uh-huh. I think because I was a little um, flashier, okay. but not better. Okay. But somehow I ended up first chair, and then he brought me his brother's Jimi Hendrix "Are You Experienced" record, and then I just kind of went, oh, yeah, I think I want to do something more like this, and then I picked up the guitar, and and here I am. <laughs> right on. That's pretty exciting, isn't it?
0: No, it's, it's very exciting. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: no, I mean, but you, you gotta... play,
0: didn't you play drums in the band originally?
1: I did. I was the original drummer, and I always tell people, yeah, you know Frank Sinatra and Iggy Pop and drummer Stevie Wonder they all started out playing drums so Marvin Gaye just to sort of blow my own image up a little bit I started out as a drummer you know with those guys
2: like the, the last yeah it was uh,
1: we were called uh, rugburn or something we, we had a few ah. different few different names we were working on but yeah it was just me Danny and Carl and I was a drummer and uh, that came together pretty quick right. I mean the shits were like more of a the shits were more of a band of dudes that just didn't really know what they wanted to do with their lives. Uh-huh. So they were trying out being in a rock band. And then by the time I met Danny and Carl it was like these dudes are more I don't want to say serious, but I'm gonna go with serious. More were they? More more dedicated to it. To less point. of a less of a thing to do on their downtime. Like their was their first priority and then, you know, they all tried to stay in school, which Never works.
2: They tried to stay in school while they were doing. The we all meetings.
1: tried to stay in school, and then we kind of got. Uh, how do you call that? We got uh, we, sidetracked. We yeah, we flunked out Send from out. the road. Like had to, I had to call my boss at the at Tracy's Saloon where I was making burgers and fries, and say I don't think I'm coming into work today, and I'm in Green Bay. I got a gig tonight, and he said, "Don't bother coming in ever again." And that was, uh, yeah, that was the end of my straight job. That was the end of it, yeah. Yeah, right on. So when did uh, when did uh, Grant come into the picture? <laughs> well, we had this house that we practiced at, and it was full of MCAD students, like art students, and it was just a it was a really cool place because everybody was always trying to make something. Okay. And I was in the basement playing with a buddy of mine, Mike Etal, who has made. E Puppets like videos. I know mine. Yep. And uh, we heard Grant playing upstairs in his room, playing on practice pads. And I was like, Who, who's that? Oh, that's Grant. And I pretty much hired him on the spot. Because I was looking for a drummer and I didn't know what to do. Right. So I just picked, I, I just swung a dead cat and. First drummer I hit, I was like, "You're." Uh, you're guy. We were you
2: looking to play guitar at that point, and like switch over and sing? Yeah, something?
1: I had switched. We got this guy named Pat Morley to play drums, and he lasted for about two years, and then he went to treatment. Yeah.
2: For drum, for drum addiction.
1: For for, for uh, yeah, beer beer issues. Beer, <laughs> beer yeah, issues. yeah.
2: So like it was like a Minia- Minneapolis was popping then, or like. Because there, there's other bands, I mean, you know, from there and it started. to seem yeah. like there was like a I, scene. Oh, you know, yeah, a
1: scene. I, I often wonder, because I tend to think that like every city has its own little scene and right. you just don't always know about it. But, you know, it was all house parties and yeah. basement parties and funny parties and warehouses where everyone could see your breath and it's cold up there, you know. And uh, yeah, Husker Du and The Replacements and Man-Sized Action and Rifle Sport and all these great bands were kind of just hovering around so it was a lot of like you'd go play a gig and the whole audience would be dudes and other bands kind of thing so it was it was not competitive it was very supporting it was like it was a really fun family to be involved with so you know I still see some of these people and they're all in and out and trying to you know wave the wave that punk rock flag man
2: yeah because I mean like when we started there uh, you know Derek our grammar you know Derek yep uh, do was, I like, you know Derek was was like aware of like the fact that there was a punk rock thing that had happened or that was happening you know it had already been happening for a while you know and he kind of definitely turned me on to a lot of stuff that I hadn't been aware of before you know and like the seven- inch thing that had been going on right you know? so that like made it Obviously you could like start a band or some kind of crap, you know, and, and, uh, and then as we were playing and we kind of found out that there was some kind of some something going on in Phoenix too, you know, in a way. But it, but not none of the other Phoenix bands, I mean some of them made a dent, you know, in a certain kind of a certain kind of a dent. Like not,
1: what were the hot Phoenix bands? I mean there? like
2: the, the people that like made a bit of a dent at least like, you know, outside of Phoenix are so like the Sun City Girls, you know. And then oh, uh, I like that band. you know, know those guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never met them. They're two brothers as well. You okay, know? There's two brothers, the Bishop brothers. Think um, you're the you
1: first. Know? You're the only. You're the first person I met that knows the Sun City.
2: Oh, they, that's the kind of like
1: the. They were very that they, mysterious. To well, me. that's
2: you know. I mean, that's a difference I noticed. I wonder what the, you know why, what what it is the, the difference between like Phoenix and Minneapolis or something. The different scenes, kind of you know, because like the the bands that came out of Minneapolis wound up going on to be like you know pretty well respected and like you know like i mean replacements and husker definitely you know like have a certain status or something mildly kind of respected and i think some of the stuff that came out of phoenix has it kind of got that but slightly different you know and a little bit more angular or something a little stranger not strange but it just you know their own kind of a thing there was them jfa came out of there back then you know but the stuff that oh, came before JFA us
1: shirt. they're from
2: phoenix yeah yeah Yeah. Don, the guitar player, is actually from out here. They had good t-shirts and stuff. Yeah, they were like, for real, like, little skateboard dudes, you know? Brian was a a teenager, their drummer was a teenager, you know? And Don was out
1: in Phoenix going to school. I wonder if they were like the first band that really melded skateboarding and rock together. It seemed like they were pretty ahead of that curve. They were ahead
2: of it in a way. You know, me and Don, actually, like, I think this might have been my last straight gig. I was parking cars at this restaurant called Beef Eaters, got a job, and it was like this you know, well,
1: what kind of food did they have?
2: Huh? I, I'm not sure. You know, I think it was a, a, a seafood joint. <laughs> you know, and it was like this is like older guys with smoke cigars kind of ah, place. Yes. You know, and it kind of looked like this inside. You know, kind of like. Did crack, you have to wear you know, a beef
0: like, like, hat when you? No, I was
2: parking fucking cars. You know, and Phoenix is hot in the summer, so you know, I, I wore a, a, a I wore like the same color shirt, pants, or something. You know, who else worked there? Is Danny, who were, you know, who still works with uh-huh. us, our uh-huh. Danny, and uh, and then Don Pendleton who was, you know, the guitar player in JFA, and he was part of that scene that we discovered that was happening, you know, as far as our little he's scene. He's super tall
1: or right? I got the wrong guy? No, he's not yeah. real tall.
2: He's not real tall. Um, he's a, no, he's not. He's like a surfer kind of dude. He, he still lives down by the
1: beach here, like I had, a, like, or something. a white button-up shirt, and on the back of it, it had Lee Harvey Oswald, and somebody was shooting something into the side of his head with a syringe, and that was... This is <laughs> my JFA shirt. I got a, a lot shirt. of great comments. That was, that was a good one.
2: Uh, Don was Don happened to be parking cars at this joint as well, and uh, I remember he asked me. He was doing other stuff. He was just he was out there going to school in Phoenix, going to like DeVry becoming a, a like an aerospace engineer, and that's nice. what he's done for years. You know, and he moved back out here and he still serves and stuff, but. He was in these other arty projects that were happening. Like the, the punk rock scene that was happening in Phoenix at the time was centered around this place, the Hate House. It was this house that like... Uh,
1: That's hate, A-T-E, not as yeah. in Ashbury. Yeah, no, hate, or, like right? hate.
2: like mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it was a like a kind of a big old house in central Phoenix that various people had like rented out and were living in, you know. And, and, it, and mostly it was like these dopers and... And like, you know, arty types, real heavily arty yeah. types, you know. So Don was playing in some arty kind of bands already. And then I remember him asking me one day at work if Derek and I would like to start a, a skate punk band, you know, a skate rock band. Yeah. And I declined, and Derek did too, just because I didn't skate, you know. And it's like,
1: we we're... I mean, what thing. are the... Cre- what's the criteria? What are the credentials? I mean, what are... I mean, he asked me, uh, so I think I, I must have fit the bill. I figured. it stayed upright and A certain up, right, amount of BPMs <laughs> that sound good for
2: skateboarding. And, and then, you know, so they made JFA, and the stuff, that, but there'd been other stuff that had come out of Phoenix before that, you know, like the stuff that led to, uh, like us getting out to Los Angeles. There was a band, the Consumers, that were out of there, and really good stuff, you know, and then the, um, the Feeders, you know, yeah. remember the Feeders, you know yeah. that, that record, Jesus sure. Jesus Entering from the Rear? Yes, That's so a winner. As it said, you know, it had its own little scene, but the the Minneapolis scene it actually got to the point where there was like a, a thing like Minneapolis kind of became like a, a city or something, you know, where it was like noted in a way, you know, didn't it? I mean, it seemed like it.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I think the the funny thing was the Minneapolis sound and depending on, I don't know what, maybe which, whether you're going with the Prince camp or the Husker du camp. Right. We never really figured out which one was the real Minneapolis sound. But, uh, uh I mean, yeah, they're, they're, it's Funky Town, right? I mean, well, there's,
2: I mean, a lot of music coming out of there, you know, definitely. And look at that, there's two big veins of music or
1: some kind of a shit, you know what I mean? Two big, like, noticeable slabs of music in a way, styles of music. It did kind of put him. In fact, when I ran into Prince, I was like, yeah, man, thanks for putting Minneapolis on the map. And he just went, oh, Dave, that's so sweet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to stop real quick for a message from our sponsor.
1: Hey,
2: everybody, it's Chris, and I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you all a little bit about the good folks at Wellspring Collective. If you're searching for a recreational dispensary in Denver, then Wellspring Collective is the place for you. With one of the city's largest selections of edibles and extracts, Wellspring Collective offers a wide range of marijuana products to recreational adults. Their high-quality cannabis products, knowledgeable staff, attentive customer service, and safe, professional environment set them apart from other recreational dispensaries in Denver to meet your buying needs. I invite you to browse through their menu, check out their specials, and contact them with any questions you may have about recreational marijuana. Wellspring Collective is located in Denver at 1724 South Broadway, along the stretch of road called the Green Mile. That's 1724 South Broadway in Denver. Wellspring Collective for all your recreational marijuana needs.
0: And now we're right back. Um, Land <laughs>
1: between two ferns? Huh? Between?
0: Yeah. We, it is a little bit like between two ferns. Um, well, let, let's skip now? ahead. Like you when you you had a tour with Husker Dew, that, yeah uh, the
1: flip your wig tour
0: and then after that you was it right after that that you were with uh and m
1: correct yes yeah we went on the flip your wig tour and uh, yeah that's all around the same time and then uh, Twin Tone and A&M sort of merged for a little while so they were trying to use Twin Tone as like a well, what, you know, minor league thing. So they Twin Tone would sign bands to their label, and then the ones that were going to go on to A and M were going to go on to A and M, and that never really ma- materialized. But those records are on Twin Tone slash A and M records, and uh, yeah, there was there was uh, plenty of A and R people coming through Minneapolis looking for whatever that was, and. Uh, it's funny to think about it I mean because people were (coughs) really always on the heels of trying to figure out what this thing was that was happening and I think by the time Nirvana came around everybody was sort of adjusted to what it was and they they, the the doors were wide open and
2: and that's something that never happened in Phoenix you know definitely like A&R guys didn't come around
1: yeah I mean it was it was it was odd, you know. Was, people were just kind of handpicking bands out of Minneapolis, and you're know, like, "Well, hey, congratulations." And what do you think?
2: It, I mean, what, what, why, why do you think that is? Is it, is it the weather? What,
1: you know. Uh, yeah. There's I, something about it, though. I think. I mean, there's a
2: communal aspect Mostly. to it in a way. Like you said, there was a familial kind of a feel or something. You went out on tour with Huskers.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that really got me excited was that there was local bands doing this thing that I didn't know. You know, I was like 16, and I thought music came out of there's a little band in the radio or something. I couldn't really understand it, and found out there's a bunch of local bands that were playing their own music, writing their own tunes and stuff, and that that I just I gravitated towards that right away. There was a club called the Longhorn, and that was like the only punk rock. Bar in town, and then they changed the name of that to Zoogies. And that's where Danny and Carl came and saw the shits playing. But at that point it was it was pretty well established, you know. I mean there was just a there was a lot of punk bands coming through Minneapolis and a lot of bands that were like switching from whatever it is they used to do to more of a punk type of a of a thing, and that was cool too because you had Uh, you know guitar players and drummers and stuff that could actually play. (laughs) So there's the guys that were playing some other kind of music and moved more into that direction and then there was guys like us that picked up the guitar because we heard the Ramones and went shit I I think I can do that you know. So it's a good town for um, yes be, being inside and being creative because right. there's just nothing else to do,
2: yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, I mean, a polar opposite in a way, because I'm from Phoenix, you know, to where it's just fucking hot, you know, yeah. this time of year, it's just so hot, you know. Sad. But it doesn't really, it doesn't drive people inside in the same way, maybe, you know. I mean, you're inside, but not quite, I don't know, the same degree, and it, you know. No. Slightly different, just kind of, a, you know, nah, it's just fucking hot out there and it's cold up there first time we came through Minneapolis was uh 82. Okay. And uh, it was like the fall of 82. And it was our Where's first tour. Uh, Kurt would remember. and uh, <laughs> Grant, you could ask Grant Hart would remember. Yeah. You know? All right. Or no. Yeah. Yeah. Grant Hart. And, um, and, uh, because I met him that night.
1: Yeah. He was at our first show. In, in
2: like Etal. That's what I, I think Etal was at that show. Yeah. I, you know? And it was cold as fuck. You know, it was just the fall, so maybe it wasn't as cold. It definitely wasn't as cold as it gets, but it was still cold. We wound up going after the gig to, to White Castle. It was my first experience with White
1: Castle. Grant took there. How was it? It was fucking amazing. Magical. <laughs> <laughs> I still have the hamburgers that I got yeah. there. Something, something weird about it.
0: So, when you when you had, which I think are two great albums, Hang Time and. Uh, and the horse we rode in on, and they didn't do as well as people thought. What was that like?
2: I mean, God.
0: Bill. Well, we
1: had cre- <laughs> we we had God. been, uh, you know, the part of this thing. Who, who where was, was, were they supposed to do what? What was it? They, they were, were those they, major label You know what? They're great albums. No, I, mean, I was I like, I didn't have a lot of expectations. I didn't know what. You happy to get it made. I didn't know what was going on, but it was a learning thing as far as having a budget for the first time to make a record and uh, you know we worked with the Ramones guys, with Ed Stasium and and Patti Smith's guy, Lenny Kay, and that was kind of the beginning of a new learning curve just because now you're in LA, now you're in New York, you're spending more money than you can imagine in the studio and you've got these people like I mean Steve Jordan who produced The Horse They Rode In On was uh, he was just a like a joggernaut of knowledge to me because he was so set in how his perception of rock music was that it was it was pretty easy for him to impress it upon the band. He's just so amazingly talented in a way that is strictly rock and roll. I don't know how else to say it, but you know, he's working with Keith Richards, but he's a Beatles fan and like he just he was just so passionate about getting us to play like you know, like grown ups, you know, like get past all this punk rock stuff and let's let's do this let's get a groove going here. Let's get some just he's just gonna inject this sort of energy and feeling into the situation where we just were kinda trying to keep up with him. And it was uh, it was elusive to a degree, but when we did it, he was like, All right. So he'd make us play a song 87 times, and by the 87th time we played it he'd go, okay, you did it. And (laughs) sometimes we'd go, that's right, we did, and other times we'd go, I don't know what we did differently on that one than the one before, but it was, you know, it was a lot of learning. I mean, and that was what was cool about it for me. It was like rock and roll college, you know, just trying to, and now I've sort of learned so much from all these different producers that I... You know, I got my own attitudes about stuff, but it's all things that I've learned along the way. You know. So yeah, it was alternative music and the reason why they called it alternative music is because it didn't sell a lot of records. So I mean that was at A and M that was part of being in this department where you're you know, you're not you're not a pop act and you're not a priority act and you're not something that they're going to try to jam down the throats of little kids, you're, you're in this other category, which is alternative, which just means you're sort of in some sort of weird incubator or something. But, but
2: it had it, gotten to the point where it was alternative. It was called, being called alternative. Like, what year is this? Like, when, when did you? I mean, get that before record? that, it Steve. was
1: just sort of called college music. Right. College rock. It was like
2: independent, is yeah, what the, indie, it was. Indie. Like, indie. Yeah. You know, which
1: like, is confusing because you're going to be an indie band, but now you're on a major label and you're still an indie band. So I, you know, I what don't
2: year know. was that Steve Jordan record?
1: Oh God, I don't know. The horse they rode in on must have been. 1989, 90, I don't don't know. I'm terrible with dates. So by then, like, 89,
2: we'd been, uh, we made, you know, we started, I mean, our first record came out, you know, from people out here, Monitor, that band Monitor, you know, like that first seven inch of ours? Yeah. You know, I mean, the way, the the way ours came out, the the path to like, actually getting anything out, uh, coming from Phoenix and having like a. You know, not that it wasn't quite that same kind of a scene. Like, the Hoosker guys, I met those guys early on, you know? And they seemed real serious, you know? They seemed very, you know, intent in a right. particular kind of a way, very focused and right. real intense, you know?
1: And, Which was inspiring.
2: You know, so, <clears throat> to get, you know, it was just like a record got, to get, just, just to get a record out was an amazing thing in a way. Not amazing, but I mean, it's just the way that we came about it, it wasn't like uh, at all, you know? I mean, it really was fucking independent of anything, you know? Music business wise, yeah, you know, this band monitor that Steel, was you'll do Nuys. it yourself aesthetic. On these guys, they they called their record label World Imitation, you know, mm-hmm. monitor their band, they're from Van Nuys, and they asked us to do a song on their album that they were making. Uh, they wanted it done loud and fast, right? And uh, so we went in the studio and recorded that song for them while we were in there. They said, Record some of your own stuff, and that's you know, we recorded those five songs, it became the seven inch, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, we played with Black Flag a few times and uh, got to know uh, Watt, you know, Mike Watt from using the Minutemen back of then. Of course. And Michael was working with the, those guys on a, with Black Flag and they were putting out Minutemen records as well. Black Flag was SST, you know, and, and we played with Flag and got to, you know, know them a little bit. And then that led to us recording with SST. So, like, by 89, we'd made, you know, quite a few records with SST. And uh, hadn't gotten to that point that you're talking about, like the learning experience side of things when you work with a producer. You know, mm-hmm. like what are you trying to get at with the recording? You know, we made all our our records ourselves with, you know, minimal budget. You know, and didn't actually get into the studio. Did you work with Spot? Spot engineered them. Yeah. You know, but uh, there was never any like production involved. You know, it wasn't right. like a. Pro- I mean, we just flat out did what we did. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we're going to make these records. You know, and we worked with Spot on two albums on, uh, or three, three albums he did. The first one, Me Puppets, and then Me Puppets 2, and then Up on the Sun. He's still... Spots around. I think he lives out in Oxford. He, he comes around here, too. Comes around thing. here. Yeah, he just, you know. play. he just and, played. Uh, and then we started making the records back in in, uh, in Phoenix. Just, you know, decided to make them out there. Go to the kids, you know. We would spent a lot of time out here and decided to just make them back in Phoenix, you know. and Those records were done with uh, different guys, but never on a producerial
1: level. Producerial. Know. You know what is I mean? Is that a word? So it is now. we were uh, it here first. And didn't get
2: into the studio. We didn't get into like a bad situation that you're talking about where, you know, you're spending other people's money, you know, and quite a bit of it, you know, where they're laying out quite a bit of money and there's expectations involved. And they asked us, you know, to, you know, get a producer, you know, once we got signed to, to the, the majors. Right. And that was like, I think, ninety ninety one or something that finally happened. And we wound up working with Pete Anderson. That set record, Forbidden Places. Yeah. You know? And that was definitely a really, that was a fucking eye opener. Yeah.
1: Know? Uh, uh, you, you know, you could tell.
2: like, uh, where uh, you're like just working at it a little differently, uh-huh. you know, and multiple takes and that kind of stuff. And, uh, but that was, you know, like years into the thing. So you're already getting to this experience. And I, don't, you know, and I think of that. Minneapolis afforded you that, you know, and that you guys helped make Minneapolis be a place that afforded bands that or something. I mean, you guys are a fun, uh, like a formative part of what, you know, the Minneapolis thing was, right?
1: Seems like. Yeah, I think there's probably some studios that are, I don't know. I don't know what's happening with kids in Minneapolis. I wish I did. (laughs) But then, I mean, then, then here's an interesting thing, then, then you guys
2: blew up and uh, then you actually managed to get to that point though, right? After a few records down the road, was it a few records down the road where it like blew out to where you're trying to do this. You're working on making the records in a different way, right? Like getting, you know, a bunch of takes or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? And then suddenly actually managed to sell a bunch of records, because I know Huskers got signed in like 85, right you know? To Warner Brothers, you know, yep. and it was it was kind of a shocking thing in a way because it just seemed like it wasn't shocked. They, they it was any kind of, of, us, of shocking. Well, if any of us like because they were on SST, right? <laughs> I
1: mean, <laughs> but if I'm any like, did. oh my God, who's going to sign? Oh my God, replacements are signed. I'm just like whoa. Yeah, but it, it seemed people like people were going you're next Dave, and I was like, nah, that'll never well, happen. Well, it to seemed
2: me. it seemed like it from uh, from the like the bands were on SST. It seemed like if any of them would get it, you know, signed to the majors considering what the majors are trying to do and whatnot it would be those guys in a way you know because uh there's like us flag Minutemen you know Sonics you know just and who seemed, you know focused in a, in a particular kind of a way you know and I don't know it's something about it that you it's know that drive and and just a, a like a, a wholeness of like vision or something as well you know you know they had a real specific sound and we all did yeah. we all did it in a way you
1: know mm-hmm. but <laughs> it was pretty inspiring for me to watch Hoosker Du do the DIY thing. I mean, they really had a vision and they really just sort of followed it without listening to anybody or, you know, just kind of always doing everything themselves. So that's kind of how I learned how to, how to do it. Right. Just do it like they do it. You just put your head down and you just, you just go.
0: Okay. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're back with our sponsors, and we had. i uh, are gonna be wrapping up in just a minute, but let's let's talk about that when you guys
2: blew up and uh, after our this quick commercial after break. This quick commercial break. For our, uh, we, we have a sponsor now. For we have the a podcast. Sponsor for the podcast. Who's well, your sponsor? It's Wellspring. Up in, Wellspring Collective. Uh, Wellspring uh, Collective up in Colorado. Really? Hey everybody, it's Chris Kirkwood. If you're searching for a recreational dispensary in Denver, then the right place to check out is Wellspring Collective. Wellspring Collective's high-quality cannabis products set them apart from other recreational dispensaries in Denver to meet your buying needs. Browse through their menu, check out their specials, and contact them with any questions you may have about recreational marijuana. Wellspring Collective is located in Denver at 1724 South Broadway, along the stretch of road called the Green Mile. Wellspring Collective, the place to go for all of your marijuana needs. What a handsome audience! A beautiful yeah, a audience. Looking we're we're looking against audience.
0: the drug war, and you know that's part of you know.
2: You're against the drug war. I'm
0: against the drug war. You're against the drug war. I'm into the drug war. Uh, I think it's fun. So uh, <laughs> we just have a couple minutes to talk about. Uh, just get rolling here. I know, I know. But war anyway, um, War
1: on Drugs is a good name for a band. War on there drugs. is a band name. Yeah. You know that band? I've never heard them, but they're I, actually pretty I good. I like the name.
0: They uh, they sound a little bit like the water boys mixed with uh, it's
1: got television. so many different meanings it's yeah like the war
0: the war on drugs
1: war on drugs war on hugs yeah so hugs. Wow.
0: what was it like ninety three like you were like everywhere you're like at the White House you have the biggest one of the biggest songs
1: yeah I don't know what year that was but one thing yeah it sort of led to another I mean once once we had the song on the radio it was kind of everybody wants a piece of your time and everybody wants a you two uh i don't know what but i mean some of it was cool the white house stuff was just interesting you know and i think that was maybe chelsea tipped off to i mean there's you're sitting there going i can't believe this is happening like what the hell am i doing here you know so there's just sort of a surreal kick to it all, where you're just like, this is this is funny. I mean, I think, I think the funnier things got, the more interesting it was to me. And then there'd be moments that were just so terribly unfunny that it just was not anywhere you wanted to be. You know, I'm not a big fan of photo shoots and things like that. But you end up doing a lot of dirty work that you didn't sign up for, which is, you know, Whatever, it's promotion and stuff, it just starts to it starts to sort of be more important than the music and that's the part that kind of really put me off. So it was like, Okay, you gotta do this photo shoot, and you gotta do this interview and you gotta do this and that and this and that and I'm like, Yeah, but I also got a gig tonight and they're like, Yeah, well don't worry about that, you know. Fine. You know it's, it's a bigger there's a bigger audience on on the radio than there is at the club tonight or something. I just you know, it's, it messes with your focus, you know, and your priorities and stuff like that. So it still happens, you know, people want you to get up at, you ever get that, oh, they want you to get up at 7 a.m. and go yeah. do a radio interview. Yeah. You got a gig that night and it's like, yeah well, Oh,
2: I, I got to experience a little bit, you know, because we had the one record that got on the radio, that one song, you know, we basically had a song get on the radio, you know. Uh, backwater, right? Yeah. Got on the radio to the degree that suddenly, and we'd been around for a while at that point, you know, put out a bunch of records and whatnot, and then to suddenly be in a, you know, like a, on pretty straight radio, right? You know, it, being a part of this world or kind of being used by that world or whatever, yeah, you know, in a way that we'd never had and had never had much to do with, you know, us at all, and definitely different, you know, but novel though. I mean, it was novel, and you know, was, still get to play a little bit. But a lot of it definitely was like a uh, de- you know different I don't think Derek liked it you know <laughs> I don't think Derek liked it that much it's you know? not, Der- Derek
0: never seemed to like that at all you know but uh,
1: yeah I mean it's it's easier to duck out of it when you're the drummer yeah no the drummer gets I mean, to duck out
0: uh,
2: yeah I'm sure a lot of pressure is put on you um but still I mean it allows you you know I mean like th- there's always been that side of it you know how do you get fucking art made you know what I mean yeah. I read a really cool book a few years ago. It was in. It was the first time we played in Mississippi. We're in Oxford, Mississippi. It's like our first Mississippi gig after all these fucking decades. And uh, across the street from the club was uh, a bookstore. Right? and they were open. And I wanted a little coffee, and they were like, so I'm like you know, bookstores like sell coffee and stuff. So I go over there. So I'm browsing the stacks, get myself a little java, and I see this thing, and it catches my eye because it's about Michelangelo or, or Michelangelo, as I know it. So uh, I'm like oh, What's this about? And I pull it off. Look at it, and it was by these like Jewish scholars. It was a fucking trippy book. They're like Jewish art scholars, right? And the the notion of the book was that uh, since Michelangelo had had like his Neoplatonic upbringing at the hands of the Medici's, right? He was a- a- aware of like the the this kabbalistic, you know, nature of, of uh, what the fuck ever, the Kabbalah and this oh, kind okay. of shit, right? So so it's Jewish guys that like recognized this, or they you know came up with it because they you know about the Kabbalah and all that. And so, what their notion was was that uh, in in the Sistine Chapel, you know, he had hidden all these like these secret messages that were to be interpreted by posterity, you know, and such as like a like a one of the the uh, sylphs or whatever they are, one of the like you know this person from the Bible that he's painted has her legs crossed in this particular way, and if you know, and that makes the shape of this particular like Jewish letter or something, uh, you know, okay. which ultimately translates to fuck you to the Pope, right? Mm-hmm. So what the notion was is that he'd been made to do this work that he didn't necessarily want to do, right? Because he's a sculptor at, at heart and he's pretty much made by his uh, patron, you know, the, the Pope. Oh, yes. To do this work that he didn't really want to do. Mm-hmm. So as, you know, to get his little jab in as best he could, he hid all these things in there. You know, uh, so the question you know, is: Did you guys hide
0: things in your major label record?
2: No, absolutely. Play, okay. play the record backwards, and it'll make your eyeballs explode.
0: Okay, real quick, because we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap it up here. But I, I want to ask you real quick: uh, Every time you guys play, you dedicate my favorite song, "Without a Trace," to Carl, mm-hmm. your former bass player. mm mm-hmm.
2: um, He was yeah, a pretty rest in peace, Carl. That's just yeah, saying. rest
0: in peace, and uh, you know, obviously, he was a pretty important part of the band in one,
2: your life. Oh, go ahead, What's go good? Yeah, go
0: and I, I don't have much else have a, to say. I have a
2: Carl story. One night, uh, you guys were in Phoenix, <laughs> and we were, we were hanging out, and uh, it was when Bill was working with you, Bill Sullivan. Right? So we were up at this hotel, and you guys like fucking heisted the, the hotel's golf cart, you mm. know, which is, you like, Oh, yes. Remember that? Do you remember that? Oh, it was yes. crazy. Oh, yeah. And the golf cart like wound up like yeah. a, like not on its wheels at one point in a way that like seemed unhealthy for a golf cart. <laughs> And uh,
3: all
2: right, the whole evening got a little bit loopy. And then by the, it got late and shit. And finally it's kind of like, okay, start to wrap this crap up. And we were in this room and like across the, the way, like across a little deserty kind of a fucking thing. Over here, some more rooms. And Carl's room was over there. And I remember him like ambling over to, the, to his room. And it was kind of like, you know, like a little bit tipsy, maybe, you know, a little bit fucking lubricated. And he gets over there and he like, was trying to get his key in the door and maybe it was like one of the when the little card keys came out or something and i remember carl like fucking poking the thing in there right and not succeeding and then he kind of leaned into the door and then he kind of bounced back away from it you know what i mean and take another stab at it and it took him like i don't know five ten minutes to get the fucking door
1: open keys yeah yes he was a he was a great man and he had the attitude that we all emulate and his thing was always be nice just kill him with kindness and he's just the, just the sweetest man ever, and I guess, you know, only the, whatever. I miss him every day. He's a good man, and he does really embody some sort of a spirit that is soul asylum. So I do sort of carry him with me wherever I go. and I miss him.:
0: Well on that note, uh, let we have a live audience, so like uh, Chris Kirkwood podcast. Wonderful, hey, Dave hey, yeah. uh, This will be out in about three or four weeks on our podcast.
2: And uh, thank you, David. Thank you very much
1: for thank coming. Thank you, Chris.
2: It uh, was fun.